Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the team come to discontinue the Tazo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, we have a listener question. Oh, um, hit me with it. Well, when I say a listener question, what I really mean is somebody asked a question on Twitter and I thought it was a good uh, episode for a topic, so I stole it. <laughs> yeah, you, um, we have a Twitter account and the handle for that is at idiots underscore pod. Good. And Jame is very active on Twitter. I occasionally dip into the account and see what he's been saying. Just <laughs> check up on him. And then roll your eyes or... Cover it, cover your eyes, and then <laughs> you do make a lot of jokes. Uh, I, I quite enjoy reading the things like, Oh, I guess technically I said this, so I'm sounding real smart. Well, I mean, but technically, you've got your own Twitter account, don't you? And I don't, so yes, that's, I'm that's living vicariously through idiots underscore pod. I, I went to a talk and it was about Twitter, and they coined the term Twitter mittent fasting. Uh, it was at Harvard Macy, and I really like that. And I'm definitely a Twitter mittent faster. I'd kind of drop in and twit, tweet, tweet a bit. But who knows? Nobody will be tweeting for it. Anyway, I'm waffling away at the beginning episode. Usually, this is the end of the episode. What we're we talking about today? Question is uh, so, this was from a Twitter user called uh, Madua Sharg. Hope I haven't murdered that name. Who asked ID Twitter? So not just me, but obviously a lot of people smarter than me. Uh, how gram positive cocci bacteremia is different from gram negative bacilli bacteremia in terms of pathogenesis, prognosis, management, duration, follow up blood cultures, and IV or oral therapy. And that is a pretty good question to ask. I thought. Uh, so I thought it was worth talking about because we do treat them very differently, but there are, you know, more similarities than differences, but it kind of depends on what clinical entity that you're, uh, you think you have in front of you. So I guess the similarity to put that out, out of the way first is that generally people with a bacteremia are unwell because they've got to a stage where the bacteria got into their blood. So it's yeah, got past their usual, you know, immune defenses. That means that you become bacteremic. Oh yes, and we've we have covered this in back to bacteremia, which is episode five of the podcast, and we can put a link to that in the show notes as well, because we always have to refer back to our old episodes to increase engagement, Callum. People can reference their own paper when they're writing something, then we can reference their own podcast episodes. That's yes, exactly. This is just like referencing back to your old. Uh, your old paper from when you were a student. But yeah, so we've covered it like a lot of stuff in, uh, in back to bacteremia. Like you say, by the time that the bug has gotten from wherever it's gotten into the bloodstream, you're in a bit of a pickle and you're probably not going to get well on your own with a few exceptions uh, where maybe the bacteremia is not so serious mm. um, as all that. What are those I mean, exceptions? Well, I guess the... Um, the stuff that springs to mind is that if you've, you know, the way that I'm going to divide up the bacteremias that we're going to talk about today is there's going to be staph aureus, there's going to be strep, and there's going to be gram negatives. And those that I think are the three big sort of 
groups. And obviously Staphylococcus is one species and strep is all other streptococci. But within that, there's stuff that kind of isn't as virulent or is occasionally not as virulent. Like I'm thinking of the viridans streps and they're, you know, sometimes referred to as mouthy streps and they, they kind of live in your mouth and you um, you kind of get a small viridan streptococcal bacteremia every time you brush your teeth. And very occasionally that can get picked up if you, you know, happen to take a, a blood culture at the right period of time. Uh, you can get this these transient viridan streptococcal bacteremias and if you just get it in one culture, then you don't reculture it again. The patient's well, you can't find a source, the patient's not particularly sick. Then uh, some people would, would then make the argument that you don't need to treat that and they don't give antibiotics for it. Hmm. The other good example is like someone's got intra-abdominal sepsis, maybe appendicitis, maybe some other bowel problem, and then you get an anaerobe in the blood culture. Uh, oh yeah, like a like a weird clostridium or a yeah, or a bacteroides uh, or something. Yeah, yeah. Which I think I've been renamed, um, but let's not go into that. So, <laughs> um, so let's start comparing. So, answering that question that was asked on Twitter. So, pathogenesis. How did they differ, James? Well, uh, so the, the loyal listener probably knows that gram-positive organisms produce exotoxins, and they're very good at uh, producing various proteins and some of them are enzymes which will you know digest something and some will uh, assist entry into the uh, body and some will kill white blood cells so pantone valentin leukocidin is a white blood cell killer and uh, that's something that staph aureus produces but they've got a variety of exotoxins which are produced some of which we are able to detect uh, on uh, toll-like receptors which are a receptor family that's on antigen presenting cells, think macrophages, Langerhans cells, dendritic cells, stuff like that. Uh, and some of which we don't, and just um, they just can contribute to worsening illness. And I suppose the other big thing to mention about the gram positives is that they tend to come from the sort of outside uh, heading inwards. So the, uh, the, they reside on the skin uh, predominantly, but also sort of the upper respiratory tract the GI tract to a much lesser extent. Um, and certainly by the time you get below the stomach, most of your gram positives are going to be intracocci and, and various streptococcal groups like the Gallaticus group, which likes living in the lower GI tract. Um, but I'd be surprised to find kind of staph aureus in the colon. I wouldn't be so surprised to find it in the upper respiratory tract in the nares. And if you think when you do staph aureus, when you do MRSA screening, you know, you swab the nose, and that's because you're trying to find a carriage there. Whereas gram negatives, by contrast, they can be environmental, but by far and away, your largest burden of, of gram negative organisms are your GI tract. You've got this massive hole that essentially runs all the way through your body from your mouth to your anus, and that's several meters of you know, warm, dark, wet environment where nutrients are constantly being funneled in. Uh, and that's uh, obviously a ripe environment for any bacteria to make a home for itself. And if you actually took a sample of your uh, microbiota at any point, it would be dominated by, by anaerobes, uh, anaerobes which are very non-pathogenic and in fact, you know, never cause you any bother. And even in 
situations of reduced gut permeability don't invade because they're just not very good at living outside of the GI tract. But there's also these things that are aerobic gram negatives, your E. coli, your Klebsiella's, Entrobacters, all the Entrobacterales that we've been mentioning, which live in your GI tract and can colonize other places like your groin skin and your vagina and your glands penis and places like that um, and can go up and colonize your urinary tract um, if they get the opportunity to, but they're, that, that's where they're coming from. Um, and they tend to only get into the bloodstream if for some reason there's increased gut permeability, like think of a cancer patient who's undergoing chemotherapy, or there's some sort of blockage in the GI tract like cholecystitis or semicolangitis, or they've gone, gotten someplace where they shouldn't have been, like they're in the urinary tract and they can sort of spread to the blood from there. The, the main sort of cause of badness really in the, in the context of sepsis there is endotoxin production. So they don't produce a lot of exotoxins. And this is not like a either or thing by any stretch, but gram negatives predominantly produce endotoxins. And, and mostly that's the, the one that's the most important that people should know about is the lipid A component of lipopolysaccharide, which makes up a big part of the gram negative cell wall. And, and the, the endotoxin is the thing which gets detected by one of the toll receptors, toll receptor four. And that's the thing that causes kind of macrophages to, to detonate and release loads of cytokines. And that leads to a big cytokine storm. So they both can end up causing, you know, severe uh, sepsis and septic shock, but they do it in slightly different ways. And just walk us through what you mean when you say endotoxin versus exotoxin. Like, what do those terms mean? What's the difference between them? So, so an exotoxin will be produced by a cell, usually a gram-positive cell, and then pushed out into the environment to cause something to happen that will benefit the bacteria, usually at the expense of the host. And so uh, my classic example would be PVL or pantonvalentin leukocidin, which is a protein which is produced by Staph aureus, some strains of Staph aureus, which kills white blood cells. And that means that it's more easily able to invade the epithelium, the skin, and therefore PVL-producing staphylococci leads to recurrent skin infection. And that's what happens when it gets into the skin, but occasionally it might get into the, into the lungs. And if that happens, it does the same thing, but to that type 2 pneumocyte that lives in every alveolus, you know, that, that macrophage, that tissue macrophage, that gets killed. And then the staph aureus can replicate uncontrolled. So that's an example of exotoxin. Okay. And endotoxin is what I said, you know, lipid A, the lipid A component of lipopolysaccharide. So it's not something that's actively produced by the bacteria for the purpose. It's just part of the bacteria, bacterial cell that happens to have a toxigenic effect. Yeah, because I, I think evolutionarily this, this probably makes sense because gram negatives replicate a bit faster than gram positives. That's why they come up earlier in, in, in blood cultures. And so if you've got something that replicates fast, it makes sense to build in to your immune system a system where you don't have to wait for an antigen-presenting cell to break down the cellular components of an evaded cell, and then they go and they present it to something, and then that something is a T cell, and the T cell says, oh, I'd better... You know, I better wake up the rest of the immune system. You can circumvent all that through the use of toll-like receptors. 
And so toll-like receptors, they look for lots of different things. They look for like double-stranded RNA, which is like only um, seen in viruses. And there's a bunch of other viral and, and sort of bacterial components that they look for. But TLR4 in particular, God, I hope I've got this right. But anyway, TLR4 looks for lipopolysaccharide. And whenever it finds it, it uh, just generates this massive immune response so that you can try and damp down that infection as quickly as possible. Because mm. if you don't do that, then the bacteria will, by the, by the time you do uh, get antigen presentation and the immune system responses by the sort of old-fashioned way, then the infection is completely out of control and, you, and you're dead. So the innate system has these little shortcuts that it likes to use to control uh, infection as quickly as it can particularly fast replicating infection. I guess we're used to thinking about bacteria as is this, you know, malign force, but you know, it's a symbiotic relationship in many ways, the bacteria in your gut in particular, but in all parts of your microbiota. And so this co-evolved, you know, way of the bacteria obviously don't really have a, none of this has like a, a will or, or any sort of intrinsic motivation other than just survival, but over millennia the the co-evolution of of humans and their microbiota has led to a situation where we can manage with each other and if the organisms step out of line and try and invade then your immune system is very well adapted to to dealing with that Mm. yes yeah definitely yeah so let me ask you then callum that that's a big the big difference between gram positive gram negative pathogenesis in terms of investigation or initial assessment let's say what do you think the major differences are between the two yeah i guess this comes back to what you've just said about where they're coming from so it's really just about identifying the sources and i don't know i guess with with the gram positives it varies by organism to organism but Mm. generally speaking they've come in from the outside and you're most worried about where they've stuck onto where they've got to so is that heart valve is that the spine is that some other source uh is there a is there an abscess or a collection somewhere is there an invasive device so you're looking for that source with the gram negatives i think generally speaking it probably is a source but it's much more likely to be something intra-abdominal so you're looking in a bit more narrow way and so you're probably looking at doing an ultrasound of the abdomen or uh getting a ct scan if that isn't identified um, and then for the gram positives, you're really thinking about more like, you know, you're going to get an echo or you're going to MRI their spine. You might want to do a CT if you're looking for something like a psoas abscess or, or something else. But then when you're talking about gram, neg- gram positive um, infection there, Cal, let, let's not pretend that all bugs are equal. Like you're worried about metastatic disease with one species much more than are the others. When I'm thinking about assessment uh, of bugs, you know, where they, where they come from, so where's the source, and where they go. And with things like with streptococci, the differentials like much wider because there's more of them and they can infect, uh, you know, anywhere they can go, uh, you know, into the lung, into the skin, into the brain, uh, this place, that place. They've got associations like, you know, streptogalliticus with uh, colonic carcinoma, et cetera, et cetera. The gram negatives are usually fairly easy to find out where they came from because there's only a few places they can live, like the urinary tract or the GI tract. Um, staff are different again because they 
metastatic disease is much more common and we're spending a lot of time looking for where they, not just where they came from, but where they went. Um, and so this, you know, looking for, um, looking for them in the heart, you know, like with it, with the TTE, that's kind of standardized in Scotland, isn't it, Cal? We, we basically, if you've got a staph or battery, we do an echo on everyone, um, which I know there's a bit of debate about, um, elsewhere but we we've we've standardized it and our threshold for doing like an mr spine in staph aureus bacteremia is is pretty low like any hint of back pain and, and basically i'm recommending it whereas with gram negatives metastatic diseases is quite uncommon um and so i wouldn't uh, mandate those investigations for everybody i think you could do a whole topic uh podcast episode or paper on the value or or disvalue of doing a transthoracic echo in people with staphylococcus bacteremia. So maybe we won't go into that, but I'll just say, I guess, by the book, I think the recommendation is to discuss with a cardiologist and consider a transthoracic echo. But the thing is, it's much easier to get an echo than it is to get a cardiologist. Yeah, a cardiologist's opinion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And also, you know, you know, what's the negative, you know, if it is negative, does it actually rule it out? Do you want to get a TOE? But a TOE is much more difficult to get. Uh, and you kind of have to ask for a TTE before you get a TOE. So, or TEE for our American audience. So, mm. um, yes, that, there's, there's a whole discussion in, in there. But yeah, I think in a, in a broad sense, how do you investigate things? Gram positive versus gram negative. You're thinking about it slightly different. Let me ask you then, Calm. Uh, do you mandate follow-up blood cultures for every bacteremia? No. Next question. Me neither. Uh, but which ones in particular? So I think in the guidance that we've got, and it makes sense, is for Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, because if there's a persistent bacteremia, then that will affect your management, and it makes it more likely to some sort of deep source that's unidentified or you've lost, you've not got adequate source control. And you you may move towards uh, a longer duration of therapy as well if the bacteremia is persistent, despite what you might der- term or consider adequate therapy. Yeah. So I suppose if they they've got endocarditis until you prove otherwise. Yeah. And if you find something else like like psoas abscess or discitis that could otherwise explain the bacteremia, then fine. You'll probably look at the heart anyway, won't you? Yeah. Uh, to make sure, but. Um, that's the road that you're going down. So if people, a lot of people, I think, have the idea that you're doing the echo to look for endocarditis. And to a certain extent, that's true. But really, you're looking for kind of sequelae of endocarditis, so not only the vegetation on the valve, but impairment of cardiac function, you know, mitral ring, abscess, stuff like that. And the... Uh, blood culture, so to look for persistent bacteremia, which is how you diagnose endocarditis, traditionally at least. That's much less common with gram-negative sepsis. So follow-up blood cultures tend not to be done. I know there's been a paper that was released recently sort of associating persistent gram-negative bacteremia on follow-up blood cultures with poor outcomes, but that's not kind of enter clinical practice yet. What about strep, Callum? Do you do you mandate them for strep? Mm, it, it depends. I think it's worth doing follow-up blood cultures of, say, someone's not settling, so you've got really bad, you know, invasive streptococcus, uh, streptococcus pneumoniae, 
bacteremia and you've maybe got some complications from that and it's still yeah. febrile, it can be useful there. And it, and it really can be useful in anybody who's been bacteremic and remain febrile and you're not sure if the bacteremia is ongoing, that can be really helpful. I wouldn't mandate it though. I, I guess the other situation for repeated blood cultures is you're worried about infective endocarditis, no matter what the organism is or some other yes. intravascular source of sepsis. So whether that's candidemia or, you know, some, some gram negatives, like I guess clepneumo uh, might be a good example of something that could cause infective endocarditis. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. True. True. So, yeah, I don't know if there's other than staph aureus definitely needs that. Yes. Gram negatives rarely needs it. And streptococci depends on the clinical picture. Yeah. 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 And, it, and if you're suspecting endocarditis, all of that goes out the window and you have to do repeated uh, culture measurements. Yeah. <laughs> what about um, IV versus oral? Yes. Yeah, so that's a huge area of emerging practice. And I guess I think it could be a whole topic for our podcast, certainly at um, the Federation of Infection Societies um, conference this year, there was a there was a session on on oral therapy. And I think that's really where Progress is being made in the specialty in general. Is this what? What, what did they say at the uh, seminar? Was it focusing on gram negatives? That one. So I don't. I can't. Don't ask. Great. Me. Thank you very much. <laughs> I saw it and I was really tempted to go, but oh, I went to something else, which is also really good. So uh, yes, we're seeing papers coming out all the time now um, of of good quality examining you know, how early can we switch to oral therapy mm. and challenging the dogma of IV. So at the moment, and say the moment, because there's, there's papers coming out, Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, uh, generally speaking, you aim for a good period of IV therapy. Potentially that's because at the moment, the IV therapy we use in the UK is fluclocacillin and the oral follow-ons historically, I guess, weren't like oral fluclocacillin you know, you, you don't really try, it's not got a great bioavailability. Whereas now with the advent of things like lanezolid, I think there's an argument to say, actually, should we be using that? So watch that space. The other ones, so gram negatives and, and strep, generally speaking, most of them, you should be able to um, IV to oral switch if they meet the criteria for IV to oral switch. So they're clinically improving. They're, you know, you've got adequate source control and the oral route's available, and you've got no reason to suspect that they won't be able to absorb the antibiotics. Yeah, I think the... I, I've put here in the show notes for both gram negatives and, and strep, sort of oral switch is okay after about 48 hours of IV. And that's kind of, to a certain extent, re reflects local practice where we've been training. Um, but I think it also... The, the oral switch agents are all stuff that is high bioavailable and therefore sort of trusted. So if you've got a gram-negative, things like quinolones or cotramoxazole, things like that, they're all high bioavailability. They're, they're you know, considered to be as good uh, orally as they are, you know, IV to the point where, you know, I think the only reason to um, ever give cotrim IV is if you're giving massive doses that the patient couldn't swallow or the GI route is, is compromised. Um, and then with streptococcus, you've got most of them, certainly in the UK at least, are still very sensitive to penicillins. And so you can give them high dose of moxicillin and be sure that you'll be killing, uh, getting, getting as good kill as if you were giving an IV. 
and most of your bacterial kill is front-loaded to the first 48 hours of therapy. And so for stuff that I can I can kill pretty easily, um, like gram-negatives and streptococci, I think two, two days of therapy, IV, is perfectly adequate. Uh, but that doesn't apply to to staph aureus uh, bacteremia, which traditionally has been treated with minimum 14 days, and people are starting to sort of move the default to 28. Um, so instead of having the standard at 14 and thinking of a reason to move to 28, people are now starting at 28 and sort of saying, okay, do, am I sure this is uncomplicated so that I can move the goalpost down to 14? And, you know, you and me, Calm, we've, we've kept people in hospital with our recommendations to have them on IV therapy. And, you know, as the POET trial has come out and now uh, there's a trial called Sabato, which is looking specifically at uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. Yeah, so 10 days median duration of IV before IV to oral switch. Well, it's not been published yet, but um, the ID Twitter sphere has posted some uh, a couple of bits about the Sabato trial, and it'll be really interesting to see um, how it's received when it is published and if it is practice changing, because it looks like it. But it was it was discussed at ESMID in like April of, of this year. And so a couple of people, there, there was an infographic, which we can include a link to in the, uh, in the show notes. But essentially it was people with low risk staph aureus, so uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia, and they received five to seven days of IV antibiotics and then were either oral switched to a further seven to nine days for a total of 14. And then they were given uh, follow-up day 13, day 90, or they continued on IV standard. Uh, therapy. And the primary outcome was 90-day SAM-related complications. So that was either relapsing bacteremia, deep-seated infection, or mortality attributable to staph aureus. So a nice kind of uh, reasonably hard endpoint. You know, some people don't like composite endpoints, but if you're going to have a composite endpoint, you might as well have the composites being stuff that you care about. And I, so I think that's reasonable. And then, yeah, you've got... Um, uh, no, at least as it's reported here, no difference in uh, in those outcomes or any uh, significant secondary outcomes. So, like I say, not published, and therefore can't comment on it further. Uh, but the signal is that it's going to be practice changing. And so, if you just think of the number of patients that you know, say, say you set that uh, five day, set that that initial IV therapy threshold at five days. And then you make sure their oral switch to something like, say, linezolid or cotrimoxazole, high-dose doxycycline, whatever oral high bioavailability therapy you trust. Um, and then you can discharge the patient. Like that's a reasonable proportion of uh, patients with uh, in infectious disease patients now able to go home. So coming back to the initial question about comparing and, and sort of contrasting gram-positive and gram-negative bacteremia, it seems to me that there has a wealth of what we do in infection management is based on historical practice or expert opinion. And as we get closer towards having high-quality, you know, randomized control trial evidence, 
in the sphere of bacteremia that maybe these two things that we manage quite differently are becoming closer. They're not going to be the same and each organism is individual, but some of the dogma around things that we've mandated are beginning to be challenged. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, look at gram-negative sepsis. We used to mandate two weeks for that, and now it's down to seven days. All this is um, expertly summarized on the Shorter is Better uh, website, by the way, um, which we can also include a link to. Um, And then Staph aureus bacteremia, you know, obviously they're still obviously set at multiples of seven, um, but that may, and there are adaptive platform trials that are going to be looking at Staph aureus bacteremia, and I think duration of therapy is one of the things that they're tweaking. I, I think, so I guess... We'll see how low we can go. If the future for this really, to me, is less about what organism you have and more about your individual circumstance and really getting personalized medicine for bacteremia because we've been so depersonalized in our approach where we say this is the standard for this organism this is the standard for gram positive gram negative and probably the answer is more how we should be doing it which is well you know an uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia may have been transient from x you know device or 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 some some other thing there's no complication from it and you can get away with a relatively short period of therapy, some of which is IV or maybe none of which is IV in the future, mm. versus a gram-negative bacteremia, which is related to a deep source, which can't be controlled. And so you're, you're stuck with a very long duration of therapy. You know, we can say what's the difference between gram-negative and gram-positive bacteremia, but it's really about, it's so complicated to, to put it in those terms. You're much better saying, what are the factors about this individual patient's bacteremia once you've got to that stage that that determines all these other things? There's some gen- basic rules and patterns that we can recognize and things that we'll look out for. But on the whole, it's, it's about the individual situation that you're in. Good point. Okay. Any uh, questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Have a five-star review in your pocket. Me and Callum would love to have it. Please drop that in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to buy us coffee, you may now do so at buymecoffee.com forward slash idiots podcast. And until next time, I'm Jane. And I was going to say I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.